I had, <laughs> I had just about figured out everything I wanted to talk about this week. I'd, I'd really kind of put together a tidy little outline, poured myself some coffee this morning, and uh, was, was looking forward to a productive day when I happened to put on the most recent episode of Poetry Says, the uh, podcast, and with a single word, with just one word, Alice managed to completely ruin my day and just f- just fuck up my perspective on uh, on on life and poetry and existence in America, as well as on my plan for this week's show. So <laughs> the word was bomb. And, and I'll talk a little bit. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background. So, so I participated for the first time in at least two years, two and a half years. I participated in an in-person poetry reading uh, this past weekend. It was fun. It was at a museum. It was very contained. There were, it was very masked and vaccinated and uh, mostly uh, the, you know, outdoor or large space, you know, the activities uh, it was for an, an anthology associated with the, the museum, and there were 10 of us who read 10 poets, or, or nine poets and a fiction writer, and we got it all in in under an hour, which is fucking amazing. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but, but for me, when I go to poetry readings, I measure time pretty much exactly the way I used to measure time as a kid when I went to mass on Sundays. That is... I would sort of mentally budget an hour and a half, but every minute after 60 was just like having my fingernails pried off. And, you know, by the time it got to like 91, I I felt like complete license to just start murdering strangers. Um, Whereas if, if it came in under an hour, I mean that's a success. That's a great mass. I mean, you leave a, a mass that 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 clocks in at fifty-five in and out. You walk out of there just saying like, "God damn, Father Timberley has his shit together." I mean, he's he's got you know, greeting, scripture, homily, Eucharist, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. I mean, he's he's got it together. That's a great priest. That's a great mass. And likewise with with poetry readings, I think, you know, if. If, if I go to a poetry reading and it's under an hour, especially if they're multiple readers, then I, I consider that to be, you know, like maybe the greatest reading I've ever been to in my life. So this was, this was one of those readings that we came in at just maybe just at an hour with 10 readers, which is pretty extraordinary. Very, very tightly, very tight ship run by Helena Fetter, a poet and, and a scholar. But Alice's... Alice's podcast this morning really fucked me up. So, so the reason is that she was also talking about poetry readings. She was talking about poetry readings in Australia. She was, she was uh, um, introducing her guest for the day, uh, a poet who's new to me, Maxine uh, Beneba Clark. But in Alice's introduction, she mentions that, that she and Clark bond she says they bonded over by, by the way if you hear um <laughs> wow that was loud if you hear uh, snuffling or whimpering or rustling that is the sound of my sister-in-law's 
very tiny and elderly dog who has, uh, we're, we're dog sitting uh, tonight and, and <laughs> she has joined me in my makeshift studio to sniff around and lick up any leftover crumbs from, from uh, my wife's lunch. So uh, Alice was talking about bonding with Maxine Beniva Clark over the experience of having been to poetry readings when they were younger. And she very casually mentions the, the formative experience of going to a poetry reading, performing, and bombing. She says both Clark and she herself, Alice Allen, have multiple times bombed at poetry readings. And it, it was character forming. It, uh, it, it taught them a little bit about, a little bit about their, their poetry. It also helped them you know, feel connected to each other, to any other poets who'd had that experience. And at the thought of Alice or Clark bombing, bombing at a poetry reading, I was overwhelmed with just sickening jealousy. Because the thing about American poetry readings is that it's impossible to bomb. You can't bomb at an American poetry reading. Now, it, it, this may, may be different for spoken word. We, uh, I, I talked last week to a spoken word poet. We talked a lot about spoken word. I've already gotten some enthusiastic responses from listeners who, who seem to enjoy the episode, but also perhaps to have enjoyed it as a hate listen. I, I, I get the impression from some of them. But in any case, you know, this is really, this is part of why I, I do retain a, a sort of a, a skeptical fascination with spoken word because, you know, I could see bombing at a spoken word poetry reading, but at a mainline academic printed words on the page poetry reading, it is inconceivable that one might bomb. Now, that isn't to say that one can't, you know, get a better response. I mean, getting a laugh at a poetry reading is, again, it's, it's about like getting a laugh in church, right? People are desperate to laugh. So it's not that hard to kill at a poetry reading. But but again, only because it's impossible to bomb. That is, in order to bomb, this is this is you know language that uh, comedians use. People go to a comedy club. What do they expect? They expect to go to a comedy club and to laugh. They expect the person who gets up on stage to make them laugh. And if that person doesn't make them laugh, he, he doesn't even have to do something bad. He doesn't even have to like actively offend. If the comedian merely doesn't make the audience laugh, boy, Oma, the little, little, little Oma is really rustling in these, uh, what is she getting into? Just, just relax. Just relax, baby girl. <laughs> She's exploring. All a comedian has to do to bomb is nothing. It's, it's just not achieve a thing. In order for a poet to bomb, the audience has to come in expecting the poet to do something to the audience, expecting to be entertained, expecting to be made to laugh, perhaps, or even 
to uh, be moved to tears or something in the loose vicinity of tears. Those expectations are nowhere to be found. They are ab completely absent from American poetry readings. And I, the, the, as I said, the one I went to this weekend was was good. Everyone was good. I have nothing bad to say about anybody there. But I will say that it reminded me of a, a particular, uh, let's call it a philosophical outlook that I think, I think American sort of serious literary words on the page American poets tend to have about readings in the philosophical field of ethics. My understanding is that the big split there, the big split between different philosophers who study ethics is, is between the consequentialists and the deontologists. Right? The, the deontologists, sometimes called the Kantians, they believe that when you do something good, all that matters is that you're, you're doing your duty. The act itself is the right thing for you to do. That's what's important. That's, that's what determines goodness. Whereas the consequentialists say, well, what really determines goodness is not your choice in that moment. It's not your intention exactly. It's what happens as a result of your choice. If what you do results in goodness for other people, in goodness overall, then you did something good. And if what you, if what you uh, chose to do resulted in, in, in harm to others, then it's bad. Now, there, there's some obvious problems with consequentialism. Among them, the existence of accidents, the existence of, uh, of unintended consequences and you know, at a certain point, if, 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 pure, if consequences are purely all that matter, then you can imagine a kind of a, a slippery slope that leads to a kind of a nonsensical, chaotic, aleatory uh, uh, system of ethics. But, you know, it's not a bad idea in general to consider the consequences of your actions, I, I tend to think. Now, the, the consequentialists uh, have some pretty devastating attacks on the deontologists. You know, they, they, they like to use um, uh, the thought experiments like the trolley problem, where you, you have to choose between allowing a trolley to kill five people who are lying on one track or actively diverting it so that it kills one person on a different track. And, and the deontologists would say, well, well, you didn't put the people on the track. But if you pull the lever, you are choosing to kill that one person. And therefore, you should not kill. It's wrong to pull the lever. Whereas the consequentialists say, are you fucking crazy? You're choosing between five lives and one life. You have to pull the lever. Now, the, the most uh, extreme example of a, of a consequentialist case against deontology, against you know, mere uh, goodness as duty, that the most extreme version of this case is, is, is the thought experiment of the SS officer knocking on your door while you are hiding a, a Jewish family of refugees in your basement. Now, Kant famously, and at some length, 
proved that lying is objectively wrong. <laughs> he demonstrated that according to any rational uh, vision of the world, uh, lying is an intrinsic evil. It is wrong to lie. To lie is, is to undermine the very premise of speech itself. And so a deontologist would have to say lying is wrong. And if what matters is that you're doing the right thing, regardless of what happens, then of course you can't lie. You can't lie to the SS officer, regardless of what he might choose to do with the information. Now, of course, almost no real person would say you should tell the SS officer the truth. And that's why consequentialists love examples like this, because it makes deontology seem ridiculous. I bring all of this silliness up because I think, I was reminded at this poetry reading, and then, and then Alice took me back to it. I, I think that at American poetry readings, American poets are fundamentally deontologists. You know, when people argue about poetry voice or they argue about uh, poets performing well or performing badly, uh, having having stage presence or not having stage presence, um, uh, enunciating or not enunciating, when people argue about all these things, you know, they're, they're not unrelated to the central question, but they are somewhat beside the point. The point from my perspective is that when I see poets read in almost every case, even with good poets, even with good poets who, who read clearly and slowly, in almost every case, what they seem to be doing is fulfilling their duty. That is, somebody said, hey, I'd like you to stand in front of this, in front of this microphone and read poems. And uh, I'd like you to read your poems and not go over 15 minutes. And so they are, they are executing that duty. I was told to come here and read poems. If I come here and I read poems and I don't go over 15 minutes, I have fulfilled my duty. Therefore, I have done what I'm, what I'm called upon to do. I have succeeded. Whereas maybe just because I have a terrible terrible tendency to get distracted during readings. I, it, it is really difficult for me to follow any poem spoken aloud. It's really hard for me to follow any story spoken aloud for that matter, but uh, you know, poems are shorter, so, so it's, it's more pitiful in that case. I, I just have a really, really hard time. And so I assume everybody has a really hard time, maybe, probably inaccurately. But I am a dyed-in-the-wool consequentialist when it comes to poetry readings, when it comes to performance in general. That is, you know, if you read your 15 minutes and you didn't go over and you were audible the whole time and the mic worked, that's not enough. The question is not whether you fulfilled your duty. The question is, what effect did it have? What's the outcome? Do the people who are here leave saying, Ugh, I hope I don't get invited to another poetry reading anytime soon. <laughs> you know, do they leave saying, oh man, that was, that was really moving. That was really funny. Or just, that was a good time. I wouldn't mind doing that again. I, I think, it, you know, that, that's really the question that matters. Is what is the effect that is produced by your 15 minutes at the microphone. And 
because I think American, I mean, American poets are, are duty bound to the degree that like, I mean, the standard, the standard performance is, you know, assuming that you're audible, assuming that you enunciate, assuming that you don't even use a sort of an, an, a, a, you know, a terrible uh, version of poetry voice, you typically stare down at the page, you speak into the microphone, into your page, you, uh, you, you, you know, you, you may mention some of the circumstances of the composition of, of the poem before you begin it. But mostly you just plow through the lines that you wrote and you give a two poem warning is <laughs> the custom. And then you say, thank you. And, and even in answering questions, even when there's a Q and a, so many of the, the, the answers seem to be duty bound. That is it, 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 when, when a, a listener asks a question, it seems to be enough in the poet's mind simply to supply an answer to that question rather than to use it as an opportunity to say something worthwhile, to be funny, to have a good time, to do anything other than what is simply and merely your duty. I mean, American poets are, I mean, it is, it's really parodic. I mean, it is, it is at the, it's, it's getting to the like, uh, why yes, Obergruppenfuhrer, uh, funny you should ask. Like it, we're, we're really getting to that point, I think, with American poetry readings. And, and that's why I was so pissed off when Alice said that she had bombed, that she had bombed multiple times, that, that lots of poets she knew had bombed, that it was something they bonded over, the way comedians bond over bombing. You know, I've done badly at readings. I've read badly. I've, 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 <laughs> I have certainly um, had my share of lackluster performances. But because nobody ever came to those readings expecting to have a good time, it has been impossible for me truly to bomb. And uh, you know, that's what fucked me up. Is that I, I, I you know, I, I have my. Uh, my 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 goals and my resolutions and my my tasks laid out for the day and for the the month and the year and uh and i realized that this is a new a new major life goal i now have is that at some point in my life maybe i'll have to travel to australia to do it but at some point in my life i would like to give a poetry reading or even just participate in a poetry reading and just i, I just have the opportunity to bomb just, just have the possibility of bombing be a real possibility. It's not even, all right, it's not that you can't bomb in a poetry reading because there's a net that, that will catch you. It's that you're not even off the ground. That, that's the poetry reading. You, you can't fall down because you're already at the bottom. Buckley Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all, as always, for listening. Uh, and thank you especially to those of you who've had a chance to go into uh, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever. Leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe, or just recommend the show to 
a friend you think might like it, or an enemy you're hoping to convert. Uh, I did want to ask uh, uh, a, couple, a couple quick thoughts. So I, I got a lot of really great correspondence this week, and I I will get to all of it either uh, you know in email form or on the podcast. I, I probably won't be able to get to uh, all or even much of it this week, but for just for for, for future convenience. I, I, as always, I, I check in with people before I, I talk about their notes on the air. But uh, if you write, if you happen to write in in the future, maybe uh, leave a little note in your in your original letter in your original email, uh, saying whether or not you'd mind my uh, using your note on the air. Uh, it would uh, just simplify things a little bit, and uh, as um, and I always want to be sure to respect y'all's privacy. Uh, the other thing is I do, um, I'm trying to figure out right now how to, who and how to invite as guests and, and sort of what's the best way to do that and what kinds of people I might want to have on. I've, I have been doing some cold solicitation as well as some uh, massaging of my <laughs> personal network. In, in any case, I really would appreciate any suggestions that, that y'all might have for, for people you'd like to hear interviewed or people you've, you've heard uh, talk uh, elsewhere in person or otherwise and would like to hear again. It's a big help. One more quick note. Next week, I will be discussing I'm Thinking of Ending Things, the novel by Ian Reed, as well as the movie by Charlie Kaufman. I'm going to be discussing both of these with previous guest, Brian Platzer. If you are somebody who cares about having books and movies spoiled, then be uh, warned, we are going to spoil this one quite thoroughly. So I mentioned that the poetry reading was at a museum. It was sponsored by the museum. The, the, the book that we were reading from was an anthology of uh, poems mostly and some pieces of prose, some stories and, and essays uh, that were commissioned, so to speak, by the museum. <laughs> commissioned for uh, for free, <laughs> but they were all pieces of ekphrasis based on works of art in the museum's permanent collection. Ekphrasis, as anybody who's ever tried it or tried to read it can tell you, is always a dicey proposition at best. This was fun. It was fun, if nothing else, to have a chance to spend a little bit of time looking at and thinking about some very good art. So what follows is a is a wildly disproportionate uh, quibble about a an entirely insignificant detail in an otherwise uh, terrific museum. After the reading, there was a little reception, but we had maybe 20 minutes to spare. And I took a little tour of the museum, wandered around. I'd, I'd spent some time in it before, but it had been, you know, two years at least. So I, I refreshed my memory. It's a great collection. They do some interesting things there, including taking works of art, often paintings, or, or um, so, and I think I think maybe a sculpture too. Usually paintings that belong to one particular region of the world or period of history. And the, the, they pluck them and and then reinsert them out of context in another 
era or region, or rather in the part of the museum dedicated to another area or region. So that uh, though, though the museum is broadly organized in the way that one might expect a museum collection to be organized, uh, it is it is a chronological by ground plan. That is, it's not like some museums where you, where you literally you know proceed from uh, ancient Egypt up through ancient Greece into ancient Rome and, and so on and so on. It, it it's the sections are scattered all around, and then within them there are little reminders of other periods of history and other parts of the world, which is you know, it's the same kind of uh, mis miscellaneous approach that Brooks and Warren used in understanding poetry. I, I take it to be, if nothing else, a reminder that all of these artists are in conversation with one another, whether or not they ever existed in the same place at the same time. So as I said, great museum, just one little curatorial note. I, they, have a, they have a decent little uh, uh, collection of Rodans. So I was uh, browsing the Rodans and there was a, a funny little sculpture I had never noticed or seen before. It was a, a small pair of figures in bronze, uh, both uh, female nudes uh, in different, you know, contrasting postures, uh, beautiful, beautiful little piece. And it was titled Venus and Andromeda. And really just because I saw that title, I bothered to read the placard. Because of course, my first thought on seeing the title Venus and Andromeda was, well, what the fuck are Venus and Andromeda doing in the same piece? They, they don't have anything to do with each other. If memory serves, I don't think, I, I don't think that Venus was even, no, it was like a, a, a sea nymph that Andromeda's mother had insulted. I don't, it was clearly a strange, a strange pairing. So I read the placard got some basic dates and, uh, and then a helpful note that uh, said that, that in fact, these were just two female nudes that Rodin had sculpted. He did this a lot with, with his uh, pieces, um, particularly when he, he would recast them in, in new contexts. He did this a lot with the great gates of hell. In some cases I find the pieces that make up the gates of hell are actually more effective on their own than they are all jumbled together. But he, he had made each of these little female nudes separately, and then he put them together in this one, which he only later called Venus and Andromeda. So that was on the placard. And I thought, well, that's a pretty, that, that's a helpful note. That that explains why they don't really have anything to do with each other. And, and even their names are, are sort of uh, chosen almost, almost at random. There was then another sentence that I don't have it in front of me, but, but I, I have it pretty close to verbatim in memory. I'll, I'll give it to you. For centuries, classical literature has been used to justify male artists and patrons' obsession with female nude figures. Sorry, with attractive female nude figures. They didn't have that attractive in there. So over the centuries, classical literature has been used to justify male artists and patrons' obsession with attractive female nude figures. I may have just said attractive female nudes, I'm not sure. So small note, uh, clearly not a big deal. I mean, it, it would be hard to imagine a less influential medium than museum placard. <laughs> 
So uh, either way, whatever one makes of it, not, not, not a huge deal, but it's stuck in my craw a little bit. Uh, and I, as I, as I try to do often uh, with when, when something like this happens, I, I went to Joanna who nine times out of 10 has the, the clearer and more sane vision of how uh, uh, things like art and books uh, actually uh, actually line up in the world outside my feverish skull. So I so I, I mentioned this to her and asked what she thought, and she her answer was a shrug. <laughs> her answer was, ah, yeah, well, this, this is pretty true, right? <laughs> it's, they it, that is that's not that's not uh that's not so inaccurate. She didn't. I think she wasn't wowed by it. Wasn't impressed by it, but neither was she bothered. It, it seemed uh, fine to her, and and as I said, it, it is fine in that it, it certainly doesn't change anything of note, except maybe a couple things. So I, I, um, I guess it you know it took me a little bit of thinking, but but there are two maybe somewhat important things that that bothered me about this little statement on the the museum placard for Venus and I'm drawing I'm sorry the piece the, the full title of the piece was toilette or toilet of Venus and Andromeda toilette having uh, the the older uh, meaning and not obviously the the familiar contemporary American significance so I guess first what bothered me a little bit about this this addendum to the note on Toilette of Venus and Andromeda. First, what bothered me was that uh, it, it's it doesn't actually provide any information about Rodin or this sculpture. Like it, it doesn't tell us any true things about this piece of art that it is purportedly providing information about. I mean, if that's what that's what a museum placard does, then this isn't doing that. And, and it's not like there's nothing to talk about. I mean, if you want to talk about Rodin and, you know, maybe dubious treatment of women and double standards for men and women, artists and models, if you want to talk about that, you know, talk about Camille fucking Claudel. Like there is a thing to talk about if that is what you're interested in. But just saying, you know, broadly speaking, classical literature has been used to justify an obsession. <laughs> this is not really telling us anything about uh, the Venus and Andromeda piece that the earlier very dry factual note didn't already tell us, which is that the, the names of the, the figures from antiquity, or not from, from antiquity, the, the names of the figures from, from classical myth uh, don't really have very much to do with the the, the, the sculptures the sculptures themselves they're, they're, they're two separate pieces that were later put together and the the names were added as a kind of an afterthought and that's all apparent already before this uh, you know I, I I couldn't help but read this little note over the centuries as a, as being I guess it took up a certain tone <laughs> that the placard had previously lacked so part of what bothered me about about it was that it doesn't actually tell us anything. It doesn't give us any information, and it doesn't give us any information in particular about this piece of art that it is labeling. And and second is that Jesus fucking Christ lay off classical literature. Like have artists and patrons over history treated many women and models poorly? 
Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. No question. And as I said, there are many specific stories to tell that deserve telling. But I, I'm, I guess I, I just find the, the, the lumping in of classical literature with ambiguous... Ba- so maybe there, maybe there are three things. Maybe there are three things. So one is that it doesn't give us any, any, any real information. Two is that it, it unnecessarily ropes in classical literature uh, and, and puts that on the hook for, for the bad actors of history. And the three is that it, it rather than actually talking about any bad actions, again, of which there are plenty to talk about. I think, again, of Bernini sending his brother to, what was, no, he sent his assistant to slash his mistress's face because uh, his brother had, had had an affair with her. I mean, artists and patrons have been horrible to women, horrible to women, uh, it, countless, countless, on countless occasions and through countless policies for centuries and centuries and centuries. And if that is a thing that you're interested in talking about, there's plenty to talk about. And people, you know, ought to be a little more educated about it. But uh, this didn't even do that. This didn't even talk about any actual events. It just talks, it, it actually speculates instead about an interior psychological condition, right? As if, as if the, the secret thoughts of the artist and patron as inferred centuries later by uh, an art curator in, a, in a, a provincial museum, as if, as if their inner thoughts are the problem instead of their actions, instead of what actually to happen to other people. Now, honestly, I don't really give a shit about their obsessions. I'm interested in what they did, what they said, and what, on occasion, they painted or sculpted. So th- th- that was my, my objection to the, the little addendum. Uh, again, n- couldn't be less significant, ultimately, because uh, you know the, 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 the question I ask when I see a, a gesture or move or announcement or change in policy relating to some kind of uh, a, a shifting moray or, or um, a sense of, particularly when it has to do with a sense of, of social justice. My, my grandparents were, my mom's parents were very, they were, they were activists and he was a lawyer and they, they, were, they were involved in a few different morally inspired campaigns for various causes. So I, I have respect for uh, activism. I have respect for the pursuit of social justice. Anytime I see a gesture or policy or maneuver or announcement, the first question I ask, uh, if it purports to to increase the, the, uh, the, the world's quantity of justice, the question I ask is, all right, so whose life is this improving? Wh- whom does this help specifically? And I think when I read that little note, I-, I could actually think of two people that the note helps. Um, I-, I don't think it really does very much for female artists or models, certainly not all the dead ones. But I, I think the two people that it helps are the person whose job it is to write that, right? The person who, who got a job out of, among other things, saying things like that, right? That, that person is clearly helped by this as the, the existence of this addendum. And the other person that it helps clearly is Rodin. And in a particular way, and, and in a way that makes me actually feel a little bit more 
uh, warmly toward the inclusion of that note because it's really not anything terribly new, certainly not anything you know unique to our culture or our moment. This is something that uh, the, the existing dominant cultures have been doing with a previous era's art for as long as there have been previous eras to have art to do things to. I think of Dante's Inferno, in which he both condemns all of antiquity as being uh, bereft of Christ's redemption, while at the same time uh, redeeming it by putting it into his art. He brings it back into the world. He, he makes it, he, he purifies it by including it in a larger Christian story as belonging to the realm of the damned. So he populates hell with all of these wonderful figures from antiquity, Minos and Radamanthus and Ulysses and, and uh, the, the Titans and um, uh, uh, you know, even Brutus right, is being chewed up. Uh, Brutus and Cassius are being chewed up alongside Judas Iscariot in the mouths of uh, Satan himself. So he brings all of these ancient figures in and all he has to do is put them in hell. And then they get to they get to inhabit the the most popular and enduring portion of his great poem. Uh, I think also of the so so like not long after uh, my, so Michelangelo painted um, in addition to painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, he also painted the far wall, and on that wall he painted a, an enormous mural of the Last Judgment. Um, I think it's a fres fresco. I think there are, I think it's all fresco. The whole chapel. I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure. He did it separately from doing the ceiling well on another occasion, but he painted The Last Judgment, terrific, enormous scene, again, of Christ and heaven and hell and the, the saved and the damned. Uh, amazing, amazing piece. And following the, the model of classical antiquity and their art, which he, of course, was, was, uh, was following his whole career, he painted many of the figures nude, uh, saints and sinners alike. And the Council of Trent, uh, I think I think shortly after his death in the end was, was when it happened. I think it was like a year or so after he died. The Council of Trent uh, ruled that uh, nudity in art was forbidden. And so a a painter was brought in to cover up, the Pope hired a painter to cover up, I think it was a, a new Pope, I think the Pope who had commissioned the work had, had died, but the new Pope, um, Paul, Clement, I don't remember. He, he uh, uh, commissioned a painter to come in and paint uh, uh, clothing over the certain sections of nudity, particularly I think of, of the women in the mural so that the, the the painting remains but some of the figures are now covered with uh, clothing or drapery or something to to make them a little bit less offensive to the Council of Trent and on one hand that's infuriating infuriating but on the other they didn't do what uh, Rockefeller did to Diego Rivera's mural 
of the the syphilis and the uh, the the evils and corruptions of capitalism. I, I've got I forget what is the name of that fucking painting. Great painting. Hold on a second. Right. Yeah. 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 So it was a, it was a, the um, at thirty Rockefeller Plaza. <laughs> Um, the uh, the home of of uh, many an NBC hit. So um, it was called Man at the Crossroads, and it included some some imagery that was thought to be Diego Rivera was a uh, communist or a socialist or something. He was he was in that <laughs> he he was he existed on that uh, that end of the spectrum, and uh, Nelson. So Nelson Rockefeller had commissioned the the mural, and. He was very offended by it. He wrote, oh, wow, I found the, all right, I found his letter. All right, this is kind of cool. So this is Nelson Rockefeller's letter, 1933, letter to Diego Rivera on seeing uh, Man at the Crossroads. Dear Mr. Rivera, while I was in the number one building at Rockefeller Center yesterday, viewing the progress of your thrilling mural, I noticed that in most recent portion of the painting, I think there's a missing article there, you had included a por- portrait of Lenin. The piece is beautifully painted, but it seems to me that his portrait appearing in the mural might very easily seriously offend a great many people. If it were in a private house, it would be one thing, but this mural is in a public building and its situation is therefore quite different. As much as I dislike to do so, I'm afraid we must ask you to substitute the face of some unknown man where Lenin's face now appears. You know how enthusiastic I am about the work which you have been doing and and that to date we have in no way restricted you in either subject or treatment. I am sure you will understand our feeling in this situation and we will greatly appreciate your making the suggested substitution with wishes i remain sincerely nelson a rockefeller uh, needless to say rivera didn't take lennon out and the piece was destroyed so uh, that's the alternative right and so in that case i'm, I'm kind of grateful to the breeches uh, put or the the cl- clothing or the dresses or togas put on all those figures in michelangelo's last judgment because the painting remains you know, uh, there's a, also the Wanderer, which is one of my favorite old English poems. Has this? It's it's very clearly the mournful soliloquy of a a warrior whose ring giver, whose whose pagan king, has died, and he is uh, wandering alone through the, the the wastes of the the icy sea, and. The world as he knows it has begun to to collapse and there's there's death and war everywhere and he has no more friends or family left it's a it's a deeply dark and sad poem uh, and a pretty moving one but it has as these weird bookends on either side it has in a way that is far less subtle than some similar uh tweaking that happened in in the seafarer i i believe um, it just has at the beginning these little, these little uh, in, in, intrusions in which a voice says, "Hey, God and Jesus are good." Uh, so uh, here's what a man says when he realizes that Jesus is good, and then uh, the, um, at the end, the, that same voice jumps in again. It says, "Just in case you were wondering, all that stuff that was about Jesus and God, and Christ is good." So it 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 reframes in a very clumsy way this great old obviously pagan poem in a with a within a christian worldview and it's annoying in that sense but it also allows the peace to exist and in some cases uh, as with especially with dante the the later brackets or bookends or reframing uh, 
can be a piece of great art in its own right. So, you know, if that's what it takes to to keep, uh, if 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 that is is the way to justify a piece of art to the mores of the moment, then okay, fair enough. I don't think there there's a lot of you know potential for great art or even incisive thought in the in the silly addendum to the Rodin placard. But if that's what it takes to keep it in the museum, then shit, put it on there, slap some other vague psychological speculation about uh, ambiguous, unnamed, uh, anonymous, historical bad guys. Uh, go ahead. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for that. And, you know, it wouldn't be uh, such a bad idea if you also uh, just, just included the work of female artists, which, of course, the North Carolina Museum of Art does do in abundance. They, they have a great and very inclusive collection. Uh, they just had this one silly placard. So that was that was my thought on that. But uh, it, it it stuck in my mind also because I had received a really good note uh, God, a couple of weeks ago now from Coleman that I've been thinking about. Uh, he's, he's since written another <laughs> dense and lengthy note, which I also want to respond to, but I won't get to today. So uh, Coleman's earlier note referred to the September 15th episode in which I talked about writing about people you know, about writing about real people and asking for permission and uh, as, as well as about uh, the Emily Dickinson poem. And I, I, I said when I was, I, I made my little remark about the dash that closes that Emily Dickinson poem, uh, I, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The poem ends with a dash. I made a, a little uh, note about the dash and I, I, I prefaced it by saying that you would have to be sort of a fool to to rest too uh, heavily any argument about a poem on a piece of punctuation. And off, offhand, I said that the exception to this rule might be owed on a Grecian urn. So this was what Coleman wrote in. I was curious about a comment you made in passing in today's episode when talking about the significance of punctuation, that maybe you can rest an interpretation of owed on a Grecian urn on punctuation to some extent. I happen to be reading the poem in the Norton Anthology just yesterday, and a footnote explains that some versions have the entire final two lines in quotation marks, while others only have beauty is truth, truth beauty in quotation marks. Is that the punctuation you were referring to? And if so, what significance do you see? At first I thought there was some ambiguity about whether the ye of all ye need to know was mankind or the urn, but since the poem consistently uses thee thou singularly and ye you plurally, plurally it seems clear that mankind is being addressed. I guess there's still ambiguity in whether the urn is addressing mankind or the speaker, but I'm not sure of the significance of that. Or maybe, more likely than not, you are talking about something entirely different. It sparked my curiosity anyway. Apologies if you've already brought it up on a previous podcast episode and somehow I somehow missed it. Have not brought it up before, but I figured I would say something about it now. So Odin and Grecian Urn is uh, it's one of my favorite poems but it is one about which there is some debate. I, I actually, back a few years ago, Jonathan Farmer started a contentious thread on Facebook of all places about the end of this poem. And I chimed in there and then uh, argued with him some more about it afterward. afterward. So what, uh, how shall I begin? Let's just, I'll just read the poem. It's a good poem. It's uh, like a page and a half, page and change, depending on how you break it down. It's, but it's a great poem. So let's let's just listen to it through, and then uh, I'll talk about the ending. Uh, all right, so this is Ode on a Grecian Urn, 
um, was believed to be composed in 1819. The I think that 1819 was the Anus Mirabilis, right? That was the year of wonders for Keats. Uh, not that not that he had a, many to choose from. Ode on a Grecian Urn by John Keats. Thou still unravished bride of quietness, thou foster child of silence and slow time, sylvan historian who canst thus express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme, what leaf-fringed legend haunts about thy shape of deities or mortals or of both, in Tempe or the dales of Arcady? What men or gods are these? What maidens loathe? What mad pursuit? What struggle to escape? What pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy? Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, ye soft pipes, play on, not to the sensual ear, but more endeared, pipe to the spirit, ditties of no tone. Fair youth beneath the trees, thou canst not leave thy song, nor ever can those trees be bare. Bold lover, never, never canst thou kiss, though winning near the goal yet, do not grieve. Oh, they fucked up the punctuation there. They fucked up the punctuation in the Poetry Foundation copy of this. Damn it. All right, I'm going to start that part over. Damn. Uh, I, I, let me just interject here. For those of you who might not be totally familiar with the poem, it's to, uh, sorry for fucking up my reading of it, but who, who cares? You can find a reading of it anywhere you want. Uh, it's a, The poem is addressed to a in an urn and the urn it's an old old greek urn it's covered with images and they're images of people in various activities and keats uh, uh where the the poet speaker waxes on about how how lovely and ideal all of these scenes in the urn are in fact even the painted musicians who of course are silent that silent music that we can't hear is even sweeter uh than any actual music because actual music is always going to be flawed in some way. It's always going to be limited in some way, even if it's just limited to being one piece of music and not another. And then he sees that there is a, uh, a man trying, straining to kiss a young woman. And of course, because they are painting, they will never quite meet. So he says, bold lover, never, never canst thou kiss, though winning near the goal. Yet do not grieve, she cannot fade, though thou hast not thy bliss. For ever wilt thou love, and she be fair. Ah, happy, happy boughs that cannot shed your leaves, nor ever bid the spring adieu. And happy melodist, unwearied, forever piping songs, forever new. More happy love, more happy, happy love. Forever warm, and still to be enjoyed forever panting and forever young, all breathing human passion far above that leaves a heart high sorrowful and cloyed, a burning forehead and a parching tongue. Who are these coming to the sacrifice? To what green altar, O mysterious priest, leadst thou that heifer lowing at the skies and all her silken flanks with garlands dressed? What little town by river or seashore or mountain built with peaceful citadel is emptied of this folk, this pious morn? And little town, thy streets forevermore will silent be. And not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er return. 
O attic shape, fair attitude, with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed, thou, silent form, dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity. Cold pastoral. When old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man, to whom thou sayest, Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. So he, he, he looks at the urn, he praises it, he contrasts the perfection and the, the frozen and perhaps unsatisfied but still ideal imagery on the urn with all of the sweaty, sour, limited, flawed, disappointed uh, the burdens of actual lived reality. And at the end, he, he, he addresses the urn and uh, more generally. And he projects into the future this, this strange role that the urn has, which is that it depicts mankind, but it doesn't change. It always depicts the same thing, always perfect, always frozen. And mankind keeps going on, misery to misery, reproduction to reproduction, age to age, loss to loss. And he says, you you." you serve us in a particular way. When old age shall this generation waste, when, when, when I, when everybody I know have died, we've all gone, gotten old and died, or as, as in his case, never gotten old and died. Thou shalt remain. You'll be here still in midst of other woe than ours. You, the, who knows what will be happening to the world, but you will still be here in some museum, a friend to man, to whom thou sayest, this is what you have to say to us. You who've been around all these centuries, who've remained the same throughout all of our changes, all of our sorrows, here is what you have to say to us. Beauty is truth. Truth, beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. So as Coleman pointed out, there is a little historical problem, which is that apart from the Poetry Foundation fucking up the, the comma earlier on in that, uh, that stands above, I'm pretty sure they did, because I'm, I'm pretty sure it doesn't really make sense otherwise. Um, but uh, apart from that, the punctuation in the last two lines is different in two of Keats's own manuscripts. There's the 1819 version and the 1820 version. And in one of them, I think in the earlier one, both lines are in quotation marks. Beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. All of that is in quotation marks. And then I believe it's the 1820 version, only beauty is truth, truth, beauty is in quotation marks. And boy, people have argued about this. Uh, a, a, a long, there's a long tradition of arguing about what the fuck is going on in this part of the poem? Uh, uh, I.E. Richards, Arthur Quiller Cooch, T.S. Eliot, Cleanth Brooks, M.H. Abrams, just to name those who were rattled off on the Wikipedia page, all had slightly different takes on what the hell is going on here. A lot of them were disappointed in the 
the obvious uh, flimsiness of Keats' claim. Right? If Keats is saying, if Keats is celebrating what the urn is telling us, and, and he gives the urn the last word in the poem, then this last word is is nonsense, right? Beauty is truth, truth, beauty. Well, you know, as as a, as a couple of them pointed out, it 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 doesn't take much lived experience to recognize that that's just not the case. There's beauty and there's truth, and they sometimes coincide. Now, that's about all you can say for them. So so just that much. If that's the last word he's giving to his readers. Well, that's quite questionable. But then to follow it up by saying, that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know? Well, what the fuck does that mean? That's insane. It is insane to say that that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know? What? How could it possibly be that? So, so Coleman is quite, quite right that there, there is ambiguity at least in in the version that only has beauty is truth, truth, beauty set off in quotation marks, there is ambiguity about who exactly is saying that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. And to whom is that being said? Now, Coleman is right. Ye is generally plural, which means that probably ye can't be addressed to the urn unless, as some critics have speculated, it's addressed to the figures on the urn, to whom much of the poem has been addressed previously. Is this um, Keats addressing mankind after the urn has addressed mankind? Well, that would seem to be even worse, right? If the urn just says, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, and then Keats says to all of us, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know, well, that's just insane. It also seems totally contradicted by the preceding lines. When old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours. Well, that doesn't sound like beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all you know on earth. I mean, you also know presumably uh, other woe than ours, right? You know old age and wasted generations, among other things, breathing human passion, etc. The, the, the high, sorrowful, and cloyed heart. So uh, there are, critics have argued all sorts of different things, including that beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know is the final sentiment of the poem. It is both pronounced by the urn and endorsed by the voice of the poem, but that the voice of the poem is not Keats. It's a dramatic monologue. And, uh, and then... Uh, other critics have said, well, it, the whole poem may be a dramatic monologue of sorts, but also that last line is a dramatic monologue. And just because he's quoting the urn doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that he, that the person who says the rest of the poem also believes this part. He's just saying that that's what the urn believes. That's what the urn has to say to us. Um, I, I think I had for a while read beauty is truth truth beauty as being the urn talking to man a friend of a friend to man to whom thou sayest beauty is truth truth beauty because i think the version i read had just beauty is truth truth beauty set off in quotation marks and then i read that is all you know on earth and all you need to know as being uh keats addressing the urn or the figures on the urn saying you say to us beauty is truth truth beauty and for you that's true right 
You live in a perfect world. That's all ye need to know on earth. That's all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. We obviously need to know a lot of other much uglier shit. But for you, beauty is truth, truth, beauty is enough. As Coleman says, the, the, the plural ye is a little bit of a problem there. But I'm not totally satisfied that, well, you know, I think then there's also a little bit of a problem with the urn having this to say to mankind. I mean, one wonders well, if the urn has bothered to say beauty is truth, truth, beauty, then why bother to say the rest of it other than to fill out the stanza, right? If this is just give us the, 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 the final truth. The urn isn't really in the advice giving business, I wouldn't think. So then there was, um, a few years ago, there was another piece of, uh, about 20 odd years ago, there was, a, there was a, an article published by Dennis Dean that made another claim, which is that both sets of quotations are right in their own way. But he says in other part in other poems, Keats sometimes leaves quotations uh, not marked explicitly. And so he says that beauty is truth, truth beauty was a quotation from Sir Joshua Reynolds, a an 18th century painter that Keats revered. And so the urn is actually quoting Reynolds. Beauty is truth, truth beauty. And then in Dennis Dean's version, the whole last two lines are in quotation marks, but beauty is truth, truth beauty is in single quotation marks within that larger quotation. So the urn is saying, quoth Sir Joshua Reynolds, beauty is truth, truth beauty. And then the urn is also saying, that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. Now, some critics have since suggested that, that the urn Dean Dean comes close to saying this, but but doesn't quite. The urn is saying, uh, in a kind of a sociopathic way, uh, as far as I'm concerned, all you all you need to know, all ye need to know, is how to make more urns. So as far as I'm concerned, this is all that I need for you to know. Uh, I think that's funny. Um, maybe maybe it's right. I don't know. It's still hard to quite to, to figure out what it means by that is all ye know on earth. I don't know. I, I think finally, I'm not sure. There was one critic who who said, uh, who compared the last two lines to a noose and said that the more you tighten them, the more you strangle our understanding and enjoyment of the poem. So uh, I think that's probably pretty on the money right there, <laughs> that you probably can, can work too hard to interpret the ending of this poem. I think that all of these different meanings that have been proposed probably do exist in some kind of superposition to, to you know, uh, to, to borrow a term from physics, to, sorry, to bastardize a term from, from physics. It, it is possible to, to include a statement in a poem, even if you immediately negate it without also affirming it, right? Uh, as my, my, um, my um, old English teacher, Jane used to say, you know, in a poem, every word means everything it's ever meant. Italo Calvino says a similar thing about fiction. He says, in a story, every object is magic. So I think in, in, a, in a poem, every word, every statement, you know, it may, it may be doing a sophisticated thing. It may be doing an ironic thing, but it's also doing a literal thing. So even if he puts it in quotation marks, part of this poem is saying beauty is truth, truth, beauty. And as other critics have pointed out, it may be worth remembering, Keats was really fucking young when he wrote this. 
And this may be a young man's poem, but it is needless to say one that has continued to fascinate and move uh, readers for over 200 years now. And I imagine will for some decades and centuries to come, provided it receives the right, the right footnote to inoculate it against the attitudes of the ages to come. So in some of my recent uh, emails with Alice, she mentioned that she uh, she's t- has took a class in the past with Joshua Meek, and she's going to be taking a class with him coming up soon on Rhyme, I think, uh, which sounds pretty fucking good. Uh, Joshua Meekin, by the way, I, I have no idea how to pronounce his last name, so I'm just saying it the way I've heard it, <laughs> which no doubt is wrong. But uh, I'm interested because in uh, I was I was pleased for her to hear that she's going to get to study with him some more. He's one of my very favorite poets. Uh, so I thought I would read, I actually uh, was reminded and reread his, his second book, um, Accepting the Disaster Today, which is really good. Uh, it's re- it's like um, it's its own thing, but but if it's close to anything, it's it's close to something like uh, like Philip Larkin and E. A. Robinson with Di- some Donald Justice as well. It's very measured and and clear and plain, but also <laughs> rippling with fury <laughs> at times. And uh, terrible sorrow at others. So I was introduced to Megan's poems by uh, A. Stallings in a, in a class I took with her, God, 10 years ago almost, maybe. Uh, so the first poem of his I read was this little poem called Cold Turkey. And uh, I think he's, he's got stronger poems in this uh, book, but it's a, it's a small and simple one. And since we've already spent some time on a long poem today, uh, I thought this is just a good introduction. Maybe it will will send you to some more of his poems. Um, it's a a triolet or triolet, yet another word I don't know how to pronounce. Very simple, repeating form that is, like many simple repeating forms, exceedingly difficult to do well. And I think this is as good an example as I have seen anywhere. So this is called Cold Turkey. By Joshua Mahegan. Did it appear somewhere, I believe, before this book? Yeah, it was in poetry, along with like half the poems in this book. Okay, uh, this is Cold Turkey by Joshua Mahegan. They're over now forever, the long dances. Our woods are quiet. The god is gone tonight. Our girls, good girls, have shaken off their trances. They're over now forever, the long dances. Only the moonlight, sober and real, advances over the hills to touch my head with white. They're over now forever, the long dances. Our woods are quiet. The god is gone tonight. In a note at the end, um, Hegan mentions that the a version of the the refrain they're over now forever the long dances uh, is is adapted from a uh, a translation of Euripides uh, Bacchae so it it, make, it makes sense i guess as a um, this is i think a really good example of a poem in which the the t- 
title makes use of a, a pregnant distance between itself and the poem in order to do its work. So that there is, uh, without the title Cold Turkey, there would be a, 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 maybe a, a more than fruitful, a more than, than what is actually useful ambiguity in the meaning of the poem or in the the emotional weight of the poem. But cold turkey, of course, is slang for quitting alcohol or another intoxicant suddenly, without tapering off, without any warning, uh, with typically with some, some harsh physical and psychological consequences. What has stopped, what is now over here, presumably has something to do with the sudden absence of intoxication that makes some sense given the the origin of the line from the Bacchae, right? Because Bacchus was the god of wine. And one of the things that made his worship special was that his worshipers were able actually to consume him in a way by, by, by becoming intoxicated by drinking wine they felt a suspension of the fear of death, a suspension of the, the feeling of mortality. One of the things that alcohol and some drugs do is to dissolve the edges of the self, to begin to create a sense of uh, involvement with other things and openness and lack of inhibition and a fearlessness, as well as uh, you know some invulnerability to pain there is a, a you know some sense in which those who became drunk worshiping bacchus briefly experienced something like immortality obviously a very fleeting version of that and the worshipers of bacchus are infamous uh, especially in this play for their violent frenzies their complete loss of control yeah, that is a that is a scary play. <laughs> if you want another uh, juicy example of this, uh, then read um, the Secret History, which was my first encounter with it. Her woods are quiet. The God is gone tonight. Whether that God is Bacchus specifically or one's own feeling of invulnerability and immortality, whatever it is, there's no more magic. There's no more wonder. There's a crispness and a harshness and a lack of comfort to this scene. Only the moonlight sober and real advances over the hills to touch my head with white. The moonlight is, of course, uh, silvery white and touches his head with white, but also presumably as, as he goes over the hill as he gets older, uh, his hair turns white, which, which is actually the case with uh, Megan. He has, he has a um, prematurely gray white hair. This one, like so many of the others here, explains almost nothing, but evokes much. It is in some ways maybe the opposite of the, the didactic poems, the the poems of declared moral instruction that I was talking about last week. This one is about as close to a pure lyric as one could get. That is something I think Megan does especially well, is 
he writes lyrics that are not even narrative, right? Most most poems in what I think of as the kind of the sense making camp, the which is which is you know I I only mean that somewhat facetiously, but poems that that uh, whether or not they use meter and rhyme, they make an effort to proceed in complete sentences with a, a somewhat consistent topic, theme, imagery, subject matter. They they often achieve their emotional force by way of narrative. Even in poems like uh, Kava Akbar's, I think his best poems, there is a narrative, and it's the narrative that leads to the really the 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 um, the release of feeling. Whereas uh, Negan, he he has some narratives, but he he's able often to create these sort of pure constellations, a, a line, a a refrain, an image, an echo juxtaposition and without having to lay out any sort of sequential events he creates a feeling of recognition it's a sad downbeat poem there's one little not interruption not exception exactly but one little just slight variation in that tone that suggests just ever so slightly, I think, the the affection that's there. It, it makes the poem, I think, far, far more touching and far more human than it might be otherwise. This is a this is a sort of a perfect poem in the you know of the a, of the A. E. Hausman variety, but it is it is softened by this one very very small note in the third line our girls good girls have shaken off their trances that good girls it's familiar it's maybe even a little paternalistic maybe even a little possessive but it's loving it's wistful it is human it's it's unguarded it's an unguarded reflexive expression of feeling our girls, good girls, have shaken off their trances. And then back to the, the solemn march. The clear, simple, plain-spoken acknowledgement. I think that's really what this poem is. It's an acknowledgement. I'll just read it one more time. I don't have a whole lot to add. It's a very short poem. It is a very simple and yet difficult form to achieve, to to you know to pull off well. And if you pull it off well then you've probably pulled it off well in a way that is hard to account for, as I think it's certainly the case here. Cold Turkey by Joshua Mahegan. They're over now forever, the long dances. Our woods are quiet. A god is gone tonight. Our girls, good girls, have shaken off their trances. They're over now forever, the long dances. Only the moonlight sober and real, advances over our hills to touch my head with white. They're over now forever, the long dances. Our woods are quiet. The God is gone tonight. That was Cold Turkey by Joshua Mehegan. As I said, it was the first poem of his I read, and it sent me into the rest of his work, which is really terrific. He, he is a poet who publishes very seldom. He's only published two books in some 
15 years or more at this point, 16 years uh, of uh, since his first book. He publishes, I think that, I think he's on like a 10 year model like like Larkin or Mary Seibist. But uh, anytime he publishes something, it's, it's worth seeing. Uh, next week, I will be back with Brian Platzer to discuss I'm Thinking of Ending Things, the book and the movie. It's, it's again, worth reading, worth seeing. Check that out if you would like before we talk about it next week. And uh, I, I said I was corresponding with Alice a little bit. Just a quick uh, heads up. It's you know down the road in a, in a couple few weeks, we are going to be doing uh, an episode together, which I think will be a lot of fun. So I will tell you more about that when we get closer to it. Um, but thank you, as always, for listening. You can reach me at sleerickets at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Until then.